The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, but it's time now to open the scriptures together. If you haven't already gotten a head start, uh, joining with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, come with me to chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're looking this morning at verses 12 to 17. It's on page 554 of your Purak Bible. And uh, I think this is our fifth week in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I'm just quite curious, uh, your, your gaining impressions of this book. What's it like uh, for you to sit under the book of Ecclesiastes? I've been asking a few people that uh, over the last couple weeks. And uh, one person says, uh, well, it's interesting. It's interesting. And uh, I asked them to elaborate on that a, a bit more. But it has been interesting isn't it? And we've been saying throughout that it's very important that you learn how to read the book of Ecclesiastes. That you've got the right lenses on so that you understand what the preacher is doing in Ecclesiastes so as not to lead you down the wrong road because, I've said this before, there are things that the book of Ecclesiastes says that give you pause and then say, I cannot believe that that's in the Bible. And we come to one of those statements this morning in our text in Ecclesiastes 2. So if you've not already uh, opened to the Ecclesiastes 2, our text for this morning, uh, let's pause as we ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures to us this morning. Oh, Father, uh, we praise You for Your sovereign decrees by which You rule the world. We praise You that in Your wisdom You've given to us the Scriptures that we might know Your will, we might know your ways and grow in the knowledge of what it means to please you, to, to grow in the delight of knowing you as our Father in heaven. And so, Lord, as we come to the Scriptures again, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give to us the, the illumination, the understanding that we might come to your Word and find not confusion and chaos and disorder, but rather an orderly testimony of what it is that it means to please you. So come now and speak to us the words of life, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Hear now the word of God from Ecclesiastes 2 uh, at verse 12 under the heading, The Vanity of Living Wisely. This is the word of God. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long, been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. 
And so let us seek to understand what the preacher is saying to us here. Now, uh, Paul is not yet speaking, of course. Uh, but everyone says that everyone, when they anticipate children learning to talk, they look forward to it, and then they get to a point where all they do is talk, and then you say, boy, wouldn't it be glad if you go back to being cute, cuddly, and nonverbal. Uh, well, one of the questions that children love to ask, of course, is why? Why? Why, why, why? Well, it's helpful, I think, for us to think of the preacher in Ecclesiastes asking the question, why? In the sense of wanting to understand why does the world work this way? Why is life like this? Why is life like this? Why is life like that? Why is it this way and not that way? Why, why, why? The book of Ecclesiastes is one long, difficult journey to find life's meaning as we understand life under the sun. And if you've been with us or if you've been following along, that key phrase, under the sun, is very important in the book of Ecclesiastes because the preacher in Ecclesiastes is trying to explain the meaninglessness of life without God. Life under the sun is a reference to an entirely secular view of the world that doesn't factor in God whatsoever. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying there are many roads that we can walk down and try to make sense of life. But if it's just life under the sun, every single road is going to end with a dead end. And so he's been taking us on those various roads. At first we saw the preacher thought that wisdom would give him all the answers. That was in chapter 1. But there were many things that he, he couldn't make straight of or things that didn't add up. And so the preacher throws his hands up in vexation and frustration because wisdom doesn't make sense of life ultimately. The next thing that we saw in chapter 2 was that the preacher said, well, if not wisdom, then pleasure. I'm going to make sense of the world by way of pleasure. And so in chapter 2, in the first 11 verses, the preacher thinks that self-indulgence is the road to happiness. So he builds magnificent buildings and creates beautiful gardens, savored the luxuries of wine, women, and song, never abstaining or restraining himself from any earthly pleasure. But he found out that it is possible to fill yourself up to the brim and still be completely empty, totally unhappy. His soul craves more than what earthly pleasures could give to him. And so his next attempt... It's going to look familiar, but he's returning again to the subject of wisdom. Now, you and I do this too, okay? When you lose something, right? When you lose something and you say, well, I just had it, and you go about that frantic search around the house, right? And somebody always makes the very helpful comment, well, where did you last have it? Well, I don't know. So you go back to where you most recently had it, and you start tearing through there, and then on into the rest of the house. Places even that you knew for sure that you did not have your keys, your wallet, your phone, whatever, so much so that you start over, right? You go back to the beginning with a little bit less of a hurried sense of frustration, and you say, let's calm down a moment and think, let's start again. The preacher is, in a sense, doing that as he goes back to where he started, but this time to do a bit more thorough investigation. He's returning again to the subject of wisdom. We see in verse 12, the preacher says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Wisdom and madness 
and folly. Now, in one sense, he has surveyed that, but this time he's going to do it with a different view in mind, with a different purpose. Uh, I was talking to somebody uh, after we saw in chapter 1 the the sermon on uh, wisdom back in chapter 1, and the comment that they had given to that was, that's helpful because I have people who think that they can outsmart their way through life. I have, I have friends, I have co-workers, I have neighbors that think they don't need a spiritual life. They don't need to factor in God because, well, they've just reasoned their way through. Well, the preacher is speaking to that person. But not just that person because he is wanting to seal again in your confidence, those of you who trust in Christ, to seal again in confidence what this is true. The word for wisdom that's used here is not spiritual wisdom. Okay? There is a wisdom that the Bible speaks of that is a wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord. That's not the kind of wisdom that the Ecclesiastes is speaking about here. The wisdom that the preacher is speaking about here is the kind of wisdom that you can get anywhere and enter any kind of general advice. It's common grace wisdom. Simple, good advice that you might get from anyone regardless of their spiritual convictions, right? So where Dr. Phil is good and true and helpful... Sure. Does he have wisdom? Sure. Can Oprah be helpful to you in some ways? Sure. Maybe. In a common grace sense. That's the kind of wisdom that the preacher is talking about here. General wisdom. Two plus two is four. Makes sense type of wisdom. Not spiritual insight, fear of the Lord type wisdom. And the madness and folly that he speaks of. Madness and folly are not two separate things, but rather madness and folly speak of the same thing as a means of saying there is wisdom and then there is non-wisdom, madness and folly. So what we've seen as the preacher goes on these various tests of pursuing these various roads is that he comes to the end of everything and says it's vanity and there's no glimmer of hope in these things. But in verse 13, we find for the first time that there is actually a little bit of a shining spot. Verse 13, the preacher says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. Meaning, it's better to be wise than to be a fool. It's one of the first positive things that the preacher has said in this entire book. He is praising the relative value of wisdom. All things being equal, it's better to be wise than a fool. And you say, well, that's groundbreaking insight. I mean, that's really earth-shattering stuff, right? Wisdom is advantageous to foolishness. It's better to be wise than be a fool. Why? He uses the metaphor of light and darkness still in verse 13. As there is more gain in light than in darkness. It's expressing the contrast between light and dark. It's better to be in the light than in the dark. Even if you're someone who is in the light and you know the arrangement of the furniture, when the lights go out, you still stumble around, right? Even in the house that you've lived in for years and years and years, you still stub your toe on the ottoman or the couch, right, when the lights go off because it's better to be in the light than in the dark. But the preacher says there are some people who have their whole life dwelling in the dark. They don't know the difference between light and darkness because it's all darkness for them. And that's how he speaks of the fool, The foolish person goes about stumbling through life, living in the dark. Verse 14 says, The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. The wise person has eyes 
They perceive, they know, they understand. The fool walks in darkness, not just around them, because darkness is inside of them. And the first conclusion that the preacher makes here, again, earth-shattering stuff, it's better to be wise than a fool. So you should pursue wisdom is the admonition there, right? Be wise and not be a fool. But the question that he asks of this is, but, but what about at the end of the day? Does it make a difference? Does wisdom or folly make a difference? Ultimately, that's the question that chapter 2 is leading us to. Ultimately, what difference does it make? Because it seems that the same fate awaits both of them in verse 14. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all. Whether the wise or the fool, the one who walks in light or walks in darkness, the one who has eyes or who does not have eyes, the same event happens to all of them. And the event that he has in mind, of course, is death. This is, this is the, the, the regular sobriety of the book of Ecclesiastes, right? If you haven't picked up on it yet. Death comes to the wise and the fool. So does it matter then? The difference between a wise person and a foolish person isn't ultimately discovered in figuring out who dies and doesn't die because the conclusion in verse 15 is, then I said, if that's true, if it's true that both the wise and the fool dies, verse 15, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why should I care then? What's the point of wisdom? What's the point of living wisely if what's going to happen to the fool also happens to me? If there's no benefit, if there's no gain. And so the conclusion comes again, and I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Just when you thought you had the glimmering hope of a positive advantage, he would say, yes, wisdom is good. Pursue wisdom and, and have a great day. He says, nope, that's vanity too. Wisdom only provides a temporary advantage. A temporary advantage. It's an advantage, but it's temporary. We're getting right to it, okay? This morning, verse 17, he says, what is probably the most troubling and difficult statement in the book of Ecclesiastes in verse 17. But leading up to it, he says in verse 16, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise died, just like the fool. He pauses, right, to, to linger on this thought, saying, in terms of remembrance, in terms of legacy, it's going to be forgotten. So, verse 17, I hated life. Does that shock you a bit? It's that sentiment, right? I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What should we make of this? What should we, what should we understand about what the preacher is saying here? What he's trying to lead us to in terms of conclusion? What he wants us to think? Is this a man who is facing life in utter despair? Right, with the darkness closing up upon him? No hope. No glimmer of peace. I hate life. It may be tempting to think that. Possibly because you might know what it means to identify with But that's not what he means. In fact, thankfully, we'll come soon to chapter 3 in which the preacher says, you know what? Life is full of wonderful gifts. 
Life is full of wonderful, beautiful gifts that God has given to us to enjoy. So the preacher here in verse 17, when he says he hates life, he is not despairing life ultimately with the darkness coming in over him. He is not in utter despair. He is using an absolute term to make a contrast because he has been talking about life under the sun with its burdens and its grievous occurrences. There are things in this world that happen to us that we can't make sense of, that we'll never understand, and even as we seek to gain some advantage with wisdom, still at the end of the day, it doesn't make sense of how much wisdom we accumulate. The stuff still happens. He is reflecting on the grievous nature of this life under the sun. What he is saying here is that this life is grievous under the sun. It is disappointing and unfulfilling. If you want a visual picture, okay, a visual picture of the preacher speaking the book of Ecclesiastes, it is like he is sitting down outside of the gate of Eden. Unable to access what was knowing the beauty and glory of life, but now on this side of Eden, with a sealed gate, I face these realities of life in a fallen world. And I hate it. That's what he says. I hate that people die. I hate that my friends and family get cancer. I hate that there is debilitating disease that robs living people of their minds so much so that they are alive but not present with me. I hate it. Do you, can you feel it? I mean, I, you need to be able to feel the raging angst against the reality of life in a fallen world to identify with this here. It's real life, isn't it? Ecclesiastes pulls no punches. It's quite bare bones to say this life is grievous and difficult apart from the grace of God. This deep emotional response over the state of things in this life. You know what this makes me think of? Because he's talking about wisdom and, and remembrance and what we need in light of hating life without God. I can't help but picture a, life from the, uh, a scene from the life of Jesus when I think about this. You know, we're, we're fairly familiar with the life of Jesus and his major events. And there's this part in Luke's gospel when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and it's the famous, uh, you know, uh, Palm Sunday occurrence, triumphal entry with crowds and palm branches and people are shouting and, and all the rest. But what immediately follows that in Luke's gospel is what Luke appears to present as something of a quiet moment for Jesus, a more private moment where he has just kind of gone through the gauntlet of people's cheerings and it presents what seems to be Jesus in his thoughts looking over the city. Looking over the city of Jerusalem, and immediately after that loud scene, this quiet scene, Luke tells us that Jesus says this. As he looks over the city full of people, he says these words. When he drew near to the city, he wept. He wept over it. Speaking these words, would that you, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. You don't know them. All these people living in Jerusalem, a city which name literally means peace, and they don't have peace. 
can't help but think about that. I can't help but think about that as I think about masses of people everywhere. And it's not just people out there in the proverbial somewhere else. It's the people here, like right here in our community. Jesus has this emotional response in light of the fact that there are people living life exclusively in the worldview of Ecclesiastes, not factoring God whatsoever. And Jesus says, you don't know what would bring you peace. You could have it. You could have it. And that's why Jesus has come, isn't it? To, to enter into the world of despair, of thinking that if I gain enough wisdom, I'll leave a real legacy for myself. I'll make a name for myself that will last forever. No, it won't. Maybe somebody will write a book about you, but books go out of circulation. Maybe somebody will tell tales of your family, but even in their remembrance, they'll get details wrong and you'll be forgotten. The preacher says, if our hope of remembrance and legacy and meaning and impact and fulfillment in this life is found in any of these things, it will go away as we do. The point that he's making here is this. You can't outsmart the grave. You can't outsmart the grave. You can pursue earthly wisdom all of your life. You can be as smart as you want. But death is the great equalizer. And here's where we go with this. This is not death is the great equalizer. Go home and have a horrible Valentine's Day. Where do we go with this? What do, what do we do with this? It does not need to lead us to despair. Because even though the grave cannot be outsmarted, the gospel tells us it can be overpowered. And it is not your power, and it's certainly not going to be your wisdom. The gospel points us to a reality of the lack of fulfillment if we are pursuing life according to the preacher's life under the sun. But the real fulfillment that can be found in Jesus Christ in His perfect wisdom, living life not just under the sun without factoring God, but rather living life in Christ under grace, having a wisdom that lasts, that's not your own. Let me tell you just personally, one of the things that I am most uncomfortable doing as a pastor, that kind of got your attention. One of the things that I am most uncomfortable doing as a pastor is eulogies. Eulogies, right? We distinguish the difference in a funeral between a eulogy and a sermon. I'm quite comfortable doing the preaching. I'm very uncomfortable doing the eulogy because I'm always, always concerned that there is a sense in which people have that we are praising the virtue of this person into the gates of heaven on their own merits. How great they were, the funny things that they said, how good of a neighbor they were, even when those things are in and of themselves wonderful things. It's not that I dislike doing eulogies, I'm just always cautious. For the same reason that the preacher is saying, 
If we have a sense that in and of ourselves, life under the sun, by our own wisdom, in our own merit, established meaning, we are actually the fool rather than the wise. Because the true wisdom is to be found in Jesus Christ with a power to conquer the grave. Because Jesus is alive, the grave is not an end for the people who are wise enough to trust in him, which is exactly what the preacher in Ecclesiastes wants you to conclude but he doesn't get there until the very, very end of the book. Your life has ultimate meaning when it finds its meaning in Jesus. And for those of you who have said, well, I have long believed that, you need to say again in your heart, do not be tempted to think that it's founded upon something in me. And then also seal the confidence that you have to say to your friends, say to your neighbors, say to your coworker, say to your spouse and your friends and all the rest. If you want to have real life that lasts, it's in Christ. It's in Christ. One of the things that I appreciate, though, about Ecclesiastes is it's not a shame to have the conversation and say, let's chase that road. Let's see where it goes. Let's talk about it. Are you happy at the end of the day with your choice? Are you happy? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by your word you lead us to Christ. That we are able from both the pages of the Old and New Testament to be delivered to your Son who gives us real ultimate fulfillment and meaning. Lord, how conscious we are that we are tempted to find it elsewhere. And so, Lord, we turn from that and say that you are our life. We pray that you might lead us in a way that honors you and in the face of the grave finds confidence and peace and life everlasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit Edgington epc.org. May God bless and keep you.